Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. This is episode 61 on the economics of the fourth industrial revolution, internet, AI, and blockchain. I'm really excited to be joined by the authors of this new book on the economics of the fourth industrial revolution published by Routledge last month. Nicholas Johnson, CEO of Economists Without Borders, and Dr. Brendan Markey-Towler, who is an associate of Economists Without Borders. Nicholas Brendan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Gene. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. The book looks fascinating. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I've read the uh, the pricey of it on the website and uh, I've had a look at the chapters and I know we've been talking about it. I've, I've chatted with you during its development and I, I think we may have even had a drink at the Brisbane Club on the day you submitted the manuscript to the publisher, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> that right. sounds about right, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I remember that night. <laughs> okay. Must have right. been a good one. Right. Oh, so... The pricey of the book says that the book applies cutting-edge economic analysis and social science to unpack the rich complexities and paradoxes of the fourth industrial revolution. So there's a lot there I want to chat about, but just in that one sentence. But could we begin by talking about this fourth industrial revolution? I'm fascinated by this concept. What is the fourth industrial revolution? revolution and what were the two previous ones? I think we're all familiar with the first industrial revolution, but what were industrial revolutions two and three? Nicholas or Brendan, if one of you would like to start, please, that'd be great. Sure, I'll jump in. So before we talk about the fourth industrial revolution, I think it's useful to useful to understand what an industrial revolution is. So in our book, we define industrial revolutions as historical periods featuring major systematic and industry-independent breakthrough applications of innovative technology, which permit new manifestations of essential economic institutions and marketplaces, and which tend to shift the aggregate production possibilities frontier outward while permanently raising the standard of living. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but there are a few components to the definition. So the term systematic highlights the organised and pervasive nature of the changes within an industry, permeating most aspects of how goods and services are sourced, produced and and sold. And the term industry independent highlights the observation that industrial revolutions are not limited to the confines of just one industry, such as agriculture or aviation or banking, but rather the nature of these breakthrough applications is such that they affect the core operational processes common to most industries. So these applications solve widespread fundamental problems or pain points, which are not the exclusive domain of any industry. So these technologies are the enabler for industrial revolutions. And we can map the um, emergence of these technologies to, um, uh, I guess, breaks in the the time series of GDP growth on a per capita basis. And economic progress is impossible without this new knowledge. And we can look at economic history to determine what aspects of the socioeconomic environment created the the requisite um, factors for these technologies to come forward. 
So there are three qualifiers as well to the definition. So the first is that applied technology must enable essential economic institutions to exist in another form or to operate in substantially different ways. This means that the technology must either create brand new marketplaces for economic buyers and sellers in which they can exchange goods and services of value, which didn't previously exist, or were previously exchanged in older marketplace formats. And the second qualifier entails that the aggregate production possibilities frontier for the society must expand outwards. This basically means that the applied technologies must enable society to produce more and better things with the same inputs. And then the third qualifier means that overall the standard of living must increase. So if we see these three qualifiers in place, then we can call it an industrial revolution. Okay. So, bit, um, so you can also step down from a, that sort of macroeconomic level to look at the more microeconomic and mesoeconomic things here, and, um, and you can boil all of that down to an industrial revolution isn't um, Apple coming up with a better iPhone. It's not even Apple coming up with the iPhone. That doesn't really constitute an industrial revolution. What an industrial revolution is constituted by is a series of what we call in economics general purpose technologies converging all at once. So what's a general purpose technology? As Nick was saying, it's not a technology that's improving one production process, not even a, techno a technology that's improving two production processes. It's improving or radically changing all of the production processes and making new ones possible. So an industrial revolution is characterised by a vast uh, increase in the outputs that society can produce, but a fundamental change in the way that society produces those outputs. Um, and while that fundamental change is being brought about, you're seeing uh, entirely new ways of producing goods and services open up, so entirely new markets opening up as well. Um, so an example, the, the, the three big ones that we've, we've focused on are internet, artificial intelligence and blockchain because these are, you know, a general, these are three general purpose technologies that we believe are really underlying the emergence of fourth industrial revolution. You, you can talk about biotech, you can talk about machine learning, you can talk about um, automation, but really an industrial revolution is characterised by the convergence of these general purpose technologies, which are not just an iPhone, they're not even just a smartphone, they're the base technology that enables that technology. So something like the internet, something like artificial intelligence, something like blockchain, it's a wholly new way of doing things all across the economy that majorly disrupts the way we produce and consume things and makes entirely new ways of producing and consuming possible. Okay. And if you look at the second and third industrial revolutions, well, we all know what the first industrial revolution um, was when it kicked in around the 1750s. And that really brought society out of this period of stagnation. Prior to then, there was no economic growth whatsoever on a per capita basis. Um, and you can characterise the first industrial revolution as broadly replacing animals and muscle power with machines. And the second industrial revolution, which occurred from about the 1840s to the 1920s, that really um, better connected the world uh, in terms of supply chains and logistics. We saw the railroads and um, uh, a lot more reliable postage service. And, telegraph. Um, telegraph, yeah, yeah, communications. And then the third industrial revolution, which had its roots in the 1960s, basically re uh, saw the advent of digital technology. So digital communications, um, 
uh, machine-based computation uh, and um, the various aspects um, and technologies which came about from that up until about the mid-2000s. And we argue um, following the work of Klaus Schwab, who's the chairman of the World Economic Forum, that since 2005 we've seen a dramatically different um, uh, state in which the, the pace of this technology is um, is changing. And that, that was rooted in the iPhone, which basically meant that the internet we can now carry around with us and you no longer have to go to a fixed portal as in a desktop computer on space to access the internet. Um, and that allowed a whole new suite of marketplaces based around the phone to, to come into being. And um, that has really changed uh, e-commerce and mobile commerce and a lot of the, the ways which we interact and communicate. Okay. So are we just at the beginning of this fourth industrial revolution? Because some economists would look at what's happened in the last 20 years and they'd say, well, there have been a lot of, it looks like there have been a lot of technological innovations, but we aren't really seeing the benefits of that in the GDP data or the GDP per capita data, are we? So are we just at the beginning of this process? Well, and also GDP is quickly becoming a difficult concept with which to measure these sorts of industrial revolutions because, as Nick was alluding to, you know, the first industrial revolution allowed us to produce more with less because we mechanised all of the work and all of the things. The second industrial revolution, we were finding out how to connect those mechanisations up together. And then the third industrial revolution, we were really learning how to, um, to automate uh, information processing in the ICT revolution. This revolution, again, we're connecting those processes together. So what we're seeing is not necessarily with this with this particular industrial revolution, its salient aspect isn't really that we're producing more with the same amount. Um, it's that we're producing radically different stuff now um, with, with inputs that we already had. And so this is leading people like Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT to question whether we need different measures of um, economic output, of economic activity. So what Brynjolfsson, so GDP for, for your listeners who who haven't been initiated into the priesthood yet. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's really a measure of what's been um, produced and, and transferred at market prices. Now, Facebook doesn't really show up in those. The only kind of Facebook that shows up in those sorts of transactions um, are Facebook's ads and Facebook's sales of your data to the NSA, who's definitely not listening in on us right now. But, um, you know, so that's not that's not going to show up in the GDP numbers as much. So Brynjolfsson is talking about different ways to try and measure economic output by what are people willing to pay for? What is the value that people put on the stuff that is produced, not just stuff that is produced in markets? You know, the rise of the sharing economy makes all this so much more complicated. So, yeah. yes, we are at the beginning of this industrial revolution. Um, so we wouldn't expect to show up in the GDP numbers as yet, but also just because of the radical nature of this um, transformation of the economy, the radical nature of its changes that it's bringing about to the way that we produce and consume stuff means that it probably, there's a good chance it will never show up in the GDP numbers, that we'd only pick it up um, if we were looking at uh, different ways to, to understand the value that's created for people. Hmm. And two of the um, flaws of the GDP metric in terms of measuring value creation, which haven't been discussed as often as some of the others 
are, first of all, the value of attention. So when you're looking at the value of a, of a social media network, for instance, people um, purchase information and gossip on this marketplace by selling their time in the form of attention. And that attention, which is afforded to the network, is what gives these networks enormous power and, 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 and value. So that isn't reflected in GDP to the same extent as it probably should be. And secondly, a lot of value is also being created on um, blockchain institutions. And if we're dealing with cryptocurrencies, a lot of these cryptocurrencies and the value that's created on these networks is not reflected in GDP yet either. Yes, yes, good point. Okay. I'd be grateful if you could explain the contribution that your book makes. So we, I understand that from the what was written on the website, the book up applies cutting-edge economic analysis and social science to unpack the rich complexities and paradoxes of the fourth industrial revolution. Would you be able to explain what what you've unpacked? What are the main what your main findings or your main propositions are in this book, please? Please buy the book as well. But, yes, yes, um, of we'll course. A, yes, we'll yes. Give a shot at, uh, uh, at that. Um, the big contribution of this book, Gene, was uh, something that kind of, I suppose, it's the old entrepreneurial thing of when you want to make a contribution, look where the pain is. And our particular pain was that uh, you know, this discussion isn't new. You know, Klaus Schwab introduced uh, the fourth industrial revolution concept before us, popularised it a lot. But what we, what kind of frustrated both of us a little about the uh, the discourse in this space is that it was largely constrained in two ways. It was constrained by um, the tendency for economists, I'm not talking business scholars here or, or, or human resource scholars or psychology scholars, I'm talking about economists, tend to approach it with the same old um, what we call neoclassical model that we use to study macroeconomics in general. And that, that model is fine and it's, it's even got some applicability to understand this industrial revolution, but it is lacking. It focuses on um, understanding economic growth as producing more with less. And for the reasons we've previously mentioned, that doesn't quite cut it for understanding what's going on in our economy at the moment. The second thing is the discourse in this space is shaped in a in, in a very particular way, it's shaped um, around the question of somebody ought to write a law. Um, the, the, the approach generally is, uh, okay, we're going to have joblessness because of AI or uh, our public square is now dominated by major media platforms and the government must do something. And we didn't really want to take that approach with this. What we wanted to do was to try and understand using another model, which I'll mention in a moment, uh, the, what, the fundamental ways in which this uh, industrial revolution will transform the way that we produce, consume and interact in society um, at a microeconomic as well as a macroeconomic level. So not just um, the amount of activity that's going on in the economy, but the pattern of what's going to go on in the economy in the future. And we wanted to help individual people understand that and what they could do about it to secure their future. So we really don't go much into topics like universal basic income in this book. In fact, we make a point of saying, we're not talking about that. Um, we're not as interested in, in trying to get governments to do this, that, or the other thing. Um, what we're concerned about is empowering individuals with knowledge of how 
um, this industrial revolution will shape their lives, their children's lives, their future, their jobs, their work, their personal life. So to do that, um, we went back to, uh, and I think you'll get a kick out of this, uh, we went back to a model uh, that was developed here in Brisbane, um, where we are currently sitting, called the Brisbane Club model. No relation to the club where we were. Uh, oh, we okay, okay. Okay. Yes. Um, so yes. No relation to that club. Um, far less liquor. Um, the, the Brisbane Club model um, is so named after this period from the 1990s to the early 2000s when the University of Queensland School of Economics was at the forefront of a field called evolutionary economics which places a premium on understanding how new technologies disrupt uh, the network structure of economic systems, the, the structure of interactions, the, the, the structure of the way we interact and consume and produce with each other. That was what that was what this uh, this field put a premium on modeling. And um, uh, Professor Jason Potts at RMIT, Professor John Foster, who was my doctoral advisor, and a, and a bevy of other people, uh, Professor Ulrich Witt, um, now of the University of Freiburg, um, were instrumental in putting together this view of the economy as a complex, evolving network structure that was disrupted, thrown into chaos um, by the emergence of new technologies and then slowly put itself back together um, as the technology diffused throughout the economy and changed the way that people produced and consumed. So when we're talking about cutting-edge economic analysis, that's what we were talking about. That's what we applied here was this Brisbane Club model, this view of the economy as a complex, evolving network structure that is disrupted um, initially. It's disrupted um, by new technologies, and then it re-coordinates itself, and the new economy does not look like the old one. And not just in and, – and this is important about this particular model – not just in the amount of stuff that is produced – that's not the only thing that a technology does. A technology does not just um, allow us to produce more with less. It allows us to produce different things. It allows us to interact with people in different ways. And so that's kind of lost in neoclassical models. Not to say that those aren't useful. They do help us. They're very valuable for accounting exercises, for instance, to measure things like uh, total factor productivity. But for this, we really wanted to understand how these three mega technologies these three general purpose technologies that we think are converging to create the fourth industrial revolution will not just increase the amount of stuff that we can produce, but change the way we interact, change the structure of our economic systems as well as their output. And so, uh, you know, a, a grand tour of what we think about that is, um, you know, the internet Obviously, uh, the, the effect of the internet is to just completely free up uh, the connective structure. We're not nearly as bound by geographical constraints as we were before. That changed with the iPhone. The internet did exist, but it was the iPhone that made it a general purpose technology and put it in everyone's pockets, so we're always interacting with everyone. That drastically expands the range of any given market. So you're, not, you're no longer interacting in a market in Brisbane, not really. You're interacting in a, in a global market. I'll give you an example. Um, because of the internet, when my wife and I uh, were decorating our house for art, we didn't have to go, we weren't constrained, and this is perhaps a bit of a pity, 
You know, it's not always a blessing, but we weren't constrained just to the Brisbane artists. In fact, we ended up getting some art from Thessaloniki, Thessaloniki in Greece um, from from a, from a e-commerce website, which is now ubiquitous. Mm. So the, the world is a much bigger place with internet. Markets are a lot bigger. That does mean there's a there's a, 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 a downside to that, which is that. Uh, the most important thing in that market now is not even what you're producing necessarily, but the degree to which you can get attention in that market. You know, the memes about there are known unknowns, there, there are known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns, and then the second page of Google results. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so you've got to be able to get attention in this economy. It's, it's Attention is the most important commodity in a new internet um, revolutionized economy. Second thing is artificial intelligence, and we'll get into that a bit more. Um, that's converging as well, which is within this overall globalized market. Now we've got this incredible capability to automate um, the type, kinds of labor that we, we, we just weren't able to automate before. You know, the stereotype is that we're able to automate white collar work uh, to a greater extent now. Um, uh, and that's that's going to have profound impacts on the structure of our labour markets, and the and that's actually pretty straightforward in terms of its its uh, economic impact. You can model it with neoclassical models. It's going to drastically increase the amount that we can produce with the same amount of resources. And at the same time, you've got blockchain emerging, and we'll get into blockchain a bit more, I'm sure. But blockchain really allows this whole new market of um, this market enabled by in, by the internet that's automated to a huge extent by artificial intelligence, it allows that market to be governed in a new way. It's not governed only by governments anymore. It's governed by the people who write and operate blockchains. And that allows for a, a level of entrepreneurship and a level of um, innovation in the way that we govern ourselves in economies that we didn't have before. So the new economy is going to be chaotic, it's going to be huge, it's going to be hyper-competitive um, because you're not just competing against the machines, you're competing against the whole world. You're not um, just competing with your geographical surrounds anymore. Um, but we've got this potential to govern it in a whole different way as well. So it's a very different world that we're looking at down the track, and that is a world when whirlwind whistle stop tour of some of what we talk about in the book nick you you, you should add some stuff as well yes yeah, so, uh, we can talk about it a bit later um, about the areas which we identify um, artificial intelligence as being most disruptive and those areas where we see it as being least disruptive and we we, we don't necessarily think it's all doom and gloom yeah yeah that might be a good place to start because it's certainly it's becoming more prominent with basic tasks. So one of my favourite services is otter.ai, which uh, transcribes uh, audio recordings. So I can get a transcript of an audio recording that's generated by AI, and it's very quick. You just upload the MP3 file, and a few minutes later you get a transcript. It's absolutely incredible. Nick, I'd be interested in your thoughts on... What is going to benefit from AI? What types of workers will be disadvantaged? And uh, you know, do we do we have to worry about some of these Terminator-type scenarios with AI, with AI taking over? 
<laughs> yeah, so I suppose we can start with um, an overview of what we identify as the four situations, um, which we think you need to understand to see the impact of AI. And as Brendan mentioned before in, in the meme, <laughs> um, well, there are really four data scenarios um, based upon uh, two different axes. So one is whether we have accessible information of data. And the second axis is whether that information data is reliable. So if you look at accessibility and reliability, you can come up with, with four options. So in the first scenario, if you're dealing with any sort of problem where we know we have accessible information and data and we know it's reliable, then these, these are the situations in which machine prediction engines are going to perform at their best, okay? Because we have high quality data. As more data is fed in, their predictive ability increases. And we have complex problems. These machines are going to tend to outperform humans, um, both in terms of endurance and also accuracy. So any sort of application where there's lots of data available and we know it's reliable, we think artificial intelligence is going to broadly replace human workers. But if you look at um, the second scenario where we know the information and data we have is reliable, but it's not particularly accessible, then uh, we have a, a different set of um, factors at play. So this is often the case for extremely rare events, such as natural disasters and freak accidents, where the data is well known and heav heavily analyzed, but there's a relative lack of comparable events, which makes it difficult for, for machine prediction tools to deliver useful inputs directly from the data without the support of some extra framework theory. So in these situations, we often find that human intuition and judgment are still going to be a better predictor than the machines. And in fact, the machines are only going to be able to augment um, the risk management frameworks which um, humans have put in place. And if you look at the unknown unknown situations where we don't really have very accessible data and we know it's unreliable, then both humans and machines are going to struggle. So we're not going to see much of a net improvement here offered by artificial intelligence prediction machines. And I guess the fourth data scenario is the unknown known, in which the problems within the data are known to humans, but they're unable to be ascertained by the artificial intelligence machine. So in other words, the data is biased, okay? The artificial intelligence machine is not going to be able to identify this bias empirically, but the humans dealing with the data will be able to identify it. And so there's a risk there that if artificial intelligence is going to replace humans completely, then we we'll might have all sort of dystopian results unless there are human overlords overseeing the process and sort of making sure that um, things don't go too far out of line. Okay. So the, you, you can really telescope in um, with, with artificial intelligence on the crux of the matter, I mean, everyone's concerned, is 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 the is the robot coming to take a job, um, and it's you know that's not a foolish. I, I it sounds like a bit of a meme, and it sounds a bit like I'm poo pooing. Um, what did Barack Obama call them? Bitter clingers. Um, I'm not because it's a real issue. You know, um, we need to work for a living under our current institutional arrangements. It's a real concern. Are the robots going to do in your livelihood? And the question really hinges on a, a rather esoteric point. Uh, you know, and, and this is the entire AI and economics literature out there really hinges on a really critical but somewhat esoteric aspect of economic theory that's at the core of the Brisbane model, which is, is a machine substitutable for a human being? 
Sounds kind of obvious. Um, it's often overlooked. In a lot of the literature, you'll see an assumption one way or the other. Um, so, for instance, uh, Darren Achimoglu um, has papers where he simply assumes outright that it's not a substitute, it's a complement, uh, complementary relationship between AI and the human being. Other work, um, such as that of David Water, um, thinks differently, assumes that it's a, it's, it's a substitute, at least on certain tasks. And uh, the reality is, as Nick was saying, is that, um, that, that there's the answer to is AI a substitute or a complement for human labour? The answer is, well, yes. And so there's this kind of interesting paradox, which is should we really be con hugely concerned about AI coming to take our jobs or should we not be hugely concerned? The answer is yes. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge problem for some kinds of workers. It's not so huge a problem for other kinds of workers. And the reason for that is that what, what AI is, is it's, you know, I'll, I'll annoy a few computer scientists by saying this, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a good way to understand it is the whole point of AI is to try and recreate a mind in the workings of a machine. Um, and that's been an arduous process, been going on since the 50s. It's only since the 2000s that, that AI has become really effective because of the sheer computing power that's available um, in the internet era. Um, and it's not a perfect replica of the human mind for a few different reasons. And, and in fact, a book came out just after we published this one called The Road to Conscious Machines, which, to, which uh, points out uh, it's written by an AI specialist, I think Oxford, it might have been Cambridge. And he said, well, I was going to write a history of AI, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, and I wanted to make my mark. So I was deciding to write about the failures, the history of the failures of AI. And one of this guy's colleagues said, well, that's going to be a long book, um, because it turns out the human mind is really hard to replicate. Um, because of a few different things, human beings as far as we know, you know, we'll say that the AI, people say that the AI can produce things that, that weren't coded in at the beginning. That's being fast and loose with the truth. Um, the reality is, is that artificial intelligences are machines. They are yet to be able to be completely creative. And if you want to deal with a data environment or a decision environment that is radically uncertain or even not so radically uncertain, it's just very fuzzy, you need creativity. And then the second, and by creativity, we mean an ex nihilio thought, something that came from nothing. Now, that gets into a whole rabbit hole around free will and, and, and philosophy. But, you know, functionally, human beings have this capability still because we are conscious. Um, the other thing you need is judgment, which is similar to creativity, but not exactly the same. Um, there's, there's this thing that human beings can do that we can look at something and say, that is true. And a machine can't really do that. And there are some mathematical, high esoteric mathematical um, proofs that a machine can't quite do that in the way that a human being can. That's the, the concept of Gödel's theorem is that there's something about the human psyche. Um, again, I'll get in trouble from philosophers and mathematicians for saying this, but yeah, who cares? Um, I'm an economist. Uh, you know, there's something about the human psyche that can judge really fuzzy and complex situations. And the other thing that human beings do is we can pick up on really subtle cues that machines, yeah, they, can, they can try, but they're just not good at that yet. Um, we call this tacit knowledge. It's unspoken knowledge. It's the knowledge of, you know, how I know if I'm talking to you that you're not understanding what I'm saying mm. is I can pick up these little cues yeah. about your your facial structure, your your pose, 
um, that are really hard to express and are really hard to teach a machine. So what that means is um, this, it's really hard for a machine to to gain the the creativity. It's, it's, it, the jury's very much out on whether machines can have the creativity or the judgment capabilities that a human being can have. But it's also the jury's out on whether a machine can, and this is important, cost effectively develop the sheer complexity of knowledge that a human being has for even something like a builder. One of the controversial claims um, we make here is that don't think the builders are going anywhere anytime soon because physical movement is a really complicated thing to coordinate. Boston Dynamics, not with uh, you know the astounding robots that Boston Dynamics comes up with, notwithstanding, building a building is a really complex thing. It involves a lot of fuzzy problem solving. It involves a lot of then taking that fuzzy problem solving and, and applying it to really fine-grained movements and creative movements that are physical um, that we're yet to say a machine can do. Now, it doesn't mean the machine that the machines aren't going to come for our jobs. Um, there will be certain types of jobs which we identify which are most likely to be displaced. Yes, and, and so that's a lot of white collar work, a lot of transcribing, a lot of uh, a lot of data analysis, frankly, a lot of uh, basically data. any any jobs which are mainly routine focused and have a defined and narrow skill set. They're the most liable to be to be automated. Any jobs that require advanced problem solving or a creative and broad skill set or are human-centered and require even a basic and service skill set, these are much less likely to be automated. For the simple fact that you can write an algorithm to do automated tasks, I mean, that's kind of in the word automated. Uh, you can automate it, you can write it down as an algorithm and give it to a machine, or you can write down an algorithm for a machine to learn it. But what you often find with these really fuzzy jobs, even something like sales, it's very hard for somebody to be able to tell you how to be a good salesman. You kind of have to learn it on the job. Um, now, machines can learn, uh, but in those fuzzy sorts of environments, like a sales clerk or like a, a, a nurse even, um, it's really difficult for a machine to be able to to, to replicate the, the non-routine ways that the human mind is able to adapt and experiment and change in those sorts of environments to get a job done well. So we are looking at a lot of automation across the board. Um, and especially since we, we, did, we didn't write, when we wrote the book, um, GPT-3 hadn't come out. This is the one that everyone's talking about at the moment, GPT-3, this general artificial intelligence. But again, as with all artificial intelligence, it looks amazing and everyone freaks out and thinks Terminator's here until you ask it a question that is a bit weird. And look, GPT is an amazing algorithm, but frankly, um, what it really serves to show is the extent to which a, a lot of human behaviour is mimicable by artificial intelligence, not what uh, the extent to which artificial intelligence can mimic human behaviour. Uh, so there's a bit of a paradox there. We, we do need to worry about automation, what people are going to do in the future to, to have a livelihood, but there will be a, there, there is going to be a future where the humans are in the loop, as we say, in this field. Right. Okay. So basically the higher level professionals or people in professional occupations, say lawyers and economists, accountants even, 
they're probably not at risk of being replaced by AI. Is that what you're saying? But if you're in a more sort of basic administrative job, then you are at risk if you're processing claims, for example. I guess a lot of this stuff's been automated already. Are there any other examples? Do you have any other, any specific examples of jobs that are likely to go in the next 10 years that would be likely to be replaced? Well, you mentioned accounting. So um, accounting is a broad field, but there are lots of specific tasks that accountants do. Some of those will be automated for sure. Others most certainly won't be. And um, what we conclude is that, you know, there's, there's a slight mismatch between tasks and jobs. Um, and it's the task which will be automated. And therefore, not all these jobs are going to go, but the tasks which these jobs acquire are likely to shift, just as they have been shifting in the last 10 to 15, 20 years. Uh, there's, some, there's something of, a, of, of an interesting conceit among um, people like us who, who yeah. are higher professionals to say we're going to be fine from AI. Um, and that's to some extent true, you know, for the very high, for very, um, for, for the positions where you're dealing with very fuzzy data sets, you're dealing with very ambiguous data sets, you're trying to figure out um, uh, uh, what the right decision is in a, in a very volatile and, and, and um uh, data dense and ambiguous environment. You know th those sorts of jobs uh, are really not going anywhere. But a lot of white collar jobs, like um, like accounting, like a lot of the work that goes on in what lawyers call discovery, which is a lot mm. of reading and, and trying to, to to build databases, um, those are at risk. Um, but on the flip side, it's not like all the blue collar workers are going to disappear either. It takes a lot of work to be, and it takes a lot of knowledge to be a builder. They're called master builders for a reason. Um, even farming, uh, I know Michael Bloomberg made a bit of a interesting statement about um, the farmers are all going to lose their jobs. Uh, well, frankly, that's because Michael Bloomberg has never been a farmer. There's a reason that farming is passed down through the generations. It's a very, very complicated um, job to do. There's a lot of knowledge about when the rains are going to come. You know, you can try and automate this stuff, but ultimately it's this tacit knowledge of how to farm and, um, and how to plant crops, where to plant crops and so on. You can try and make it into an exact science and, you know, the School of Agronomy here at QUT and out at UQ will try, but it's a very complicated job in reality. So, you know, farming is probably not going very fast. Same with building, nurses, doctors, even though doctors are increasingly, AI is doing a lot of the stuff that they would otherwise do in terms of diagnosis and data analysis, doctors still need to be there to converse with patients, to get the patient to reveal things that they might not otherwise reveal, and similarly with nurses. So across the board, you can identify tasks within jobs um, and then even full jobs that are going to be automated by AI. But while every job is going to be fundamentally transformed by this new technology, not every job is going anywhere. Um, and what's really interesting is how those jobs are going to change by the automation of things. You know, being a doctor or a lawyer or in the future is going to look very different now that you have an AI to uh, do a lot of the sort of routine work for you. Um, or maybe uh, what about dentists? I mean, could an AI assess people's teeth? Could they do some of the basic 
work in dentistry perhaps. I, I don't know. That's just an example that I'm conscious of because I have to go to the dentist tomorrow. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's certainly – I can't speak to the dentist example, of, uh, but, um, you know, with any certainty except to say that I'm pretty sure that could be the case because already we've got um, uh, algorithms that are helping – uh, surgeons to identify cancers better, for instance, right? Mm. So um, it, it does an analysis, it does an exhaustive statistical um, and, and image-based analysis of, of a spot, and then the human comes along and then makes a final judgment of it. So that automates a lot of the work that the doctor would have otherwise done, but it doesn't take the doctor out of the loop. And so that's the sort of thing that we're probably going to be looking at is um, the amount of work that can be done by humans if they're using an AI to automate a lot of the routine stuff that they would otherwise do is just cornucopian, um, to use a Latinate word. Um, it is just the amount of work that can be done in an AI future is huge and it's not going to be done just by the machines. You know, we're not going to Marx's uh, utopia. Marx famously talks of the communist utopia as one where nobody ever needs to work again because the machines will do everything. You know, that's not where we're going. Um, but we are looking at a world which is vastly more productive, um, at least in theory, and a world where workers do need to be different. Uh, the the what what mm. uh, what uh, human workers will be useful for or, or competitive against AI in is going to be restricted, um, but it's not zero, and there's a lot of it to be done. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think you're right. It's dependent on the specific tasks. I've heard that AI is almost as good, if not better, than humans with with uh, analysing X-rays, with, with radiography. I don't know if you've heard that or if that's an example you're aware of. I, I think I heard that from Seth Godin on one of his podcasts. I'd also like to talk about the building, the point you make about builders. I think you're correct there because a the number of times builders, they'll hit some pipe that, oh, well, we never expected that to be there. Or they'll find some artefacts uh, such as uh, the builders found at the Queen's Wharf development here in Brisbane when they found those old Edison cables from the right. yeah, 1890s. They never expected to be there. So, yeah, there are all sorts of unexpected occurrences in uh, when you're building a house or, a, or well, that, that's a casino they're building there. Uh, so... It's when there are unexpected things that, and you need the judgment. That's where humans are valuable. Uh, I want to move on to blockchain soon, but there's one more thing I want to ask about AI. Do you say anything about automated vehicles? Or what is it, autonomous vehicles in your book? Because there are a lot of concerns about truck drivers. In the US, I think there are, is it 3 million truck drivers they're saying may not have a job if we end up with driverless vehicles? Yeah, so I mean that's that's a lot of this, a lot of the discussion about autonomous vehicles really goes into um, uh, what we call the trolley experiment. That's where a lot of the discussion around that is, uh, you know, the ethical conundrums of, of driving a car. Um, the jury's out. Like the, the the truck driver example, the train driver example. Train driver is, is actually a lot um, simpler, you know. Uh, because trains kind of go along rails, which really constrain their movement. Um, but, you know, the truck driver is the, is, the, is the archetypal example of the job that is going, um, that is going to be lost to AI. Now, again, the jury's not quite in. Yeah, because as, as we suggest, um, there are a lot of legal problems with, um, which are still trying to work themselves 
out um, if you have driverless vehicles, because if there's an accident, then who's liable? And so um, a number of jurisdictions are you know, sort of concluding that maybe it's simpler just to have a driver in there so that they are ultimately responsible. And perhaps the act of doing the uh, driving the vehicle is simpler if, it, if it's on autopilot, but they're still there just to correct um, or to, to, to jump in in the case of an emergency. The human circuit breaker idea. Exactly. Um, to yeah. act as, as, as an agent of judgment um, if something unexpected arises. So that's, you know, that if, if truck driver, what we could probably say is, look, if truck drivers are going to be a profession in the future, that's probably going to be their role is as an ethical safeguard. Um, and that's sort of illustrative of the broader um, question at play here is, is that, you know, the AIs can take over anything that's structured, automated, very simple. Uh, you can write an algorithm or you can learn a procedure and you could write down um, a procedure for learning that procedure. The AIs have got that down. But something fuzzy, something unexpected, something ambiguous where a decision has to be made, that is something that's going to have to be taken care of by a human. Um, almost certainly into the future. So what's this space for the truck drivers? That's 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 the bellwether, as it were. Um, as Iowa is in the US presidential elections, so the truck drivers are in the transformation of our labour market. Um, it'll be very interesting to see where that goes. And I think it's going to reveal a lot about, um, you know, the theory is very simple. It's, it comes down to, can you substitute a human for a machine? And can it be done cost effectively? Uh, but that theory is simple. Now it's time to test it in, in the real world in the fourth industrial revolution. Okay. So I'll leave people to read more about uh, AI in uh, in your book. So, yeah, we'll certainly – I certainly recommend people read it. I'm definitely going to read it as soon as I can. Before we go, I'd like to talk about blockchain. And you mentioned that it offers the potential for this – is it decentralised control so we don't need top-down regulation or administration? I'm struggling to understand in reality what that will mean. Do you have any any examples of how blockchain will, will, uh, will change our lives, will change the economy? I know we've got cryptocurrencies, so there are some people out there using Bitcoin. What's the prospect that that will become more widespread? What are more general applications of blockchain? If you can provide some thoughts on that, please, that'd be great. Absolutely. So blockchain as a technology is um, exciting because when you deal with institutions in society and in the economy with any significant number of human beings, they all have this one thing in common, and that's a coordination problem. So each human being can be characterised as some sort of independent actor with agency to choose their own actions. So they're a free economic agent, right? Um, but when you have lots of economic agents in an institution together, there won't necessarily be any sort of coordination of, um, of purpose or, or, or function. And so there needs to be some set of rules or norms put in place to define a set of proper or rational or, or accepted actions. So this could be anything from very minimalistic non-aggression principle through to a fully formulated um, set of legal statutes and a legal system which, you know, define the rules or norms for that institutional society. And um, whenever you have deviations from these, from these rules, um, you have a bunch of interesting things that take place. So you can talk about unintentional deviations um, and unintentional deviations 
take place all the time because human beings are prone to error. And then if you have intentional deviations, well, if it's performed for public gain, then you'd call that activism. And if, if it's performed for private gain, then you'd call that corruption. The problem is that when you have too much deviation from these rules and norms, you get chaos. Mm. And chaos leads to unpredictability. And unpredict unpredictability leads to economic losses. So uh, there's actually a, a, a seminal piece of work that came out in 2009 by Dixit on the economics of governance. And it looks at, you know, the security of property rights, enforcement, enforcement of contracts and collective action. And blockchain is exciting because it enables all of these to take place in a decentralized institution where you don't need a centralized body or, or leader or facilitator to manage all the transactions that take place and interactions that take place in the institution. So um, maybe Brendan can talk a little bit about uh, our blockchain model. Yeah, I mean, so... I'll talk about why this probably isn't going to happen, but what I want to do first is to give you a sense of what this technology makes possible. Yes, uh, yes. This, this, this particular technology appeals to my uh, my inner crypto anarchist. <laughs> and you've got to understand that it did come out. What makes this uh, what this what makes this technology really, really cool and fun and exciting um, is that it came out of the crypto anarchist movement. It's shrouded in mystery. We don't even know who Satoshi. Satoshi Nakamoto is the guy who created Bitcoin. Um, and I'll give you a sense of why. There is a blockchain out there. Um, one of my many, there's a number of other blockchains like this called EOS. Their intention is to create a non-territorial country. Their intention is, I'll repeat that, their intention is to create a non-territorial country that you can be a citizen of in the way that you're a citizen of Australia, except that it's on the internet, not um, in a geographical setting. The reason why that is, is because cryptocurrency is really only very one very, very small application of what blockchain can do. The main thing, the, the most important thing blockchain can do is that it can allow for the compilation the curation and the execution um, and, and uh, what would you call enforcement of contracts. Exactly. Um, so there are basically a database that is distributed across the internet and maintained by the internet by this thing called the consensus algorithm, which is um, very nerd speak. Um, it, it, it's, it's seriously cool, but I don't want to... Uh, um, get lost in the technical weeds of it just now. Um, and that database can 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 hold anything. Um, it can hold crypto, it can hold, it can record currency holdings. That's the first application of blockchain, but it can hold contracts, it can hold digital identities, it can hold votes, kind of relevant for right now. <laughs> yeah. um, it can hold um, births, deaths and marriages. It can hold whatever you want and the internet will keep that database and update it. And so that means that provides a platform for people to write rules about how contracts are to be, how contracts and interactions within the internet are to be structured and governed according to certain rules. That is absolutely revolutionary because that is the purpose of a state is to determine the rules by which we interact and enforce contracts and interactions between each other. Um, that is what a state does. And now what blockchain does through the way that the technology works, um, it allows us to write these rules so that people in the internet effectively belong to countries, effectively are subject to government, but not centralised government. It's what I'm fond of saying is blockchain is governance for the internet, 
of the internet by the internet. Hmm. It's um, and the 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 technology, and we can talk about why this isn't going to happen uh, because there is a major roadblock in its way. But the a few major roadblocks. The idea is to create non-territorial countries, places on the uh, the entire systems in the internet where we conduct our life and our business um, according to rules that we can uh, consent to, that we can create, that we can move between if we're not comfortable with them. Hmm. And in a legal sense, blockchain is remarkable because it permits two or more parties to enter into some form of contractual agreement in cases where, first of all, the parties may wish to preserve their anonymity. And secondly, in cases where the parties are unable to rely upon the understood legal or social context to ensure the enforcement of that contract. And so these two cases point to a lot of the most natural emerging um, use cases for blockchain that we're seeing. So in, in, um, in um, developing uh, uh, in developing sectors, so the, the, the World Food Program um, uses them to, to um, create like a, a digital identity for a lot of the, the refugees in, um, in war-torn countries. And um, the World Bank Identification for Development Project um, is is uh, using them as well to help with um, know your customer uh, verification processes, and we see them take, uh, being taken up in the energy sector and, and in healthcare and supply chain. So, any sort of use case where um, there there is economic benefit to be gained from uh, having contracts that can be enforced in some sense automatically, um, where privacy issues are a concern or there's a lack of existing identity. That's where blockchain is. Most okay, I've heard that there is a company, I forget who it is, there's an entrepreneur, she's from Brisbane originally, I think, she's got a company that's uh, facilitating trading in grain, do you know, have you heard of her? Oh, yes, that might be Katrina, um, I just remember it's Katrina, um, I've forgotten her last name because she's just a force of nature, Right. Um, but yes, um, Katrina Donahue. Donahue. Right. Um, I think she she runs a, a, blo- a blockchain startup. Uh, apologies, Katrina, if I've misremembered. Um, Katrina Donahue, who runs a, a blockchain called Civic Ledger. Right. Yeah. Um, she's also uh, she's working on applying this to developing water markets mm. in, in far north Queensland. Uh, citizen databases um, for voting records and identification right. records. Um, she's she's really uh, kicking lots of goals and, and working hard on this area. Um, and and it's really exciting what you can do. You know, uh, you don't have to have births, deaths and marriages or contracts subject to the whims of the state government anymore or the federal government. You can um, submit them to a blockchain um, and, and have them recorded, have them held, have them executed, um, have them enforced in this new institutional, what we call an institutional governance structure that exists in the internet. You know, what's happening in the internet at the moment with blockchain is similar. Um, And again, I'm overstating this because there's a lot of things in the way of this, uh, but what's happening in the internet now is the formation of states. 
it's, it's, it's roughly equivalent in the internet to in the geographical world, the formation of states about 5,000 years ago when the first um, chiefs and kings started emerging to provide governance for the way that we interact and said, look, you don't like it, go over to the next kingdom. That's now starting to happen on the internet. It's just that we don't have kings anymore. We've got the consensus node network um, who enforce the rules, create the rules, and say, look, these are the rules by which we've agreed to interact. Um, if you don't like them, you can go somewhere else. That's hugely exciting. Um, there's a lot of things in its way. I mean, um, unfortunately, blockchain remains a bit of an engineer's playground. It's very difficult to use this um, system, this software. Extremely difficult to use, actually. It's, it's difficult even for professionals in this space to, to work with blockchain. So we kind of, you know, the old saying is that uh, technology is most effective when it's invisible. Um, blockchain is very visible. <laughs> um, so it's, it's quite difficult to use the technology. Governments are obviously a bit uh, wary of it because it cuts in on their turf, as it were. So there are a lot of barriers still standing in the way to this technology, but it is hugely exciting because it provides a new way to govern our interactions in an internet era, this technology for governance, this technology for setting down rules for how we are to interact and enforcing those rules, it was developed by the internet for the internet and to be run by the internet. Okay, so is it a way of creating decentralised exchanges, is it? Is it's a, So you were talking about, I think there are companies that are selling energy over... Blockchain, is that right? And you're talking about water markets. So it's a way of having a, a – of creating a market but not having any central exchange like a stock exchange. Is that one way to think well, about that, it? Yeah, so um, in fact, there are a number of um, blockchain-based local energy markets or LEMs as they're known um, already um, in existence around the place. So. Okay. Um, such microgrid projects, there's one in Brooklyn. So the Brooklyn microgrid project was um, established in 2017, 2018. And there's one in Landau, which is also known as the LAMP project. Um, and these actually make use of the um, Ethereum blockchain. And so they have smart meters which share energy demand and supply information of each of each producer and consumer of the energy. And these are treated as, as, um, as, as, as nodes in, in the blockchain network. And... Um, and there's been progress similarly on blockchain-based peer-to-peer electricity trading networks such as PowerLedger. And similarly, there's a lot of potential for that to transfer into battery charging networks for electric for electric vehicles. Um, it's been uh, there have been consensus mechanisms based around proof of benefit actually, which have been designed specifically for these sort of peer-to-peer electricity trading networks. Um, so it's got a lot of potential in the energy um, in the energy space. Yeah, it's it's not that it decentralizes the exchange per se it decentralizes the oversight and enforcement okay. of that exchange that's what it does and that's really important um, because at the moment uh, a lot of our exchange is overseen and enforced by a centralized authority um, that is subject to corruption that gets us that is subject to congestion that is inefficient that takes a lot of time the blockchain decentralized that 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 comes from the technical aspects of the technology which we can get into about the way that you know an entry into the blockchain is broadcast to a whole network of nodes in the internet who are responsible for curating and updating and coming to consensus on what the blockchain is but that's what it's that's that's what it's doing what it's doing in that technical capacity is 
taking the regular economic exchange that you would have on the internet and then instead of having a government, a public servant or a judge having complete oversight and enforcement power over that, having an entire network of consensus nodes, computers having oversight, a decentralised network of computers having oversight and enforcement power over that. Um, so it's an emergent form of governance. It's not a form of governance where a king came along with a sword and said, anyone who doesn't uh, agree with me gets the sword. It's a kind of governance that emerges from a bunch of people all agreeing to abide by certain rules and exclude anyone who doesn't. Um, abide by those rules and and those rules are developed and enforced in a decentralized way by consensus rather than by coercion exactly and just on that point we're seeing blockchain emerge um, as a form of governance among open source um open source communities based around software in particular and these are often known as some commons-based peer production communities because a lot of people both benefit from the open source product that is created so they're consumers of the product, but also producers of the product because in turn they provide their own contributions and input to the to the, to the ongoing um, project. And blockchains um, in a number of cases has been found to be a very useful way to uh, formalise a lot of these otherwise organic interactions. Right. Okay. Look, this is all fascinating. I'm going to have to put a few links in, show no- in the show notes to different companies that are taking advantage of the blockchain it sounds like there are potentially a lot of applications and we have to wait and see how it all plays out. But I, I think there is a, a good case to be made for the potential for this transforming our economy. And I think that is the case you're making, isn't it? This along with AI and the internet will just will radically transform our economy over what, over the next uh, 10, 20 or 50, 100 years? Over the next 10 to 20, 10 to 20, I'd say. 10 to 20. um, Might be set back a little bit as we figure out COVID Mm. and see the dust settle from that um, because, uh, well, uh, yeah, that's a big disruption. But over the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to see the world become hyper-competitive, cornucopian and for there to be a lot more potential for people to develop rules that they want to live by, not that are forced on them by governments. Okay. Uh, that is the world that we're looking at. It's going to be a very fast-paced, a very, very competitive, because of the internet world, um, you're going to need to be uh, able to do a lot of different things. You're going to need to be able to keep people's attention. You're going to need to know how to grab people's attention and hold it. You need to know, then you need to combine that with the ability to produce something that people really want that is valuable to them um, within that. And then you're going to be a need to be able to know how to bring in this amazing production technology that is AI to f- multiply the force of your labour um, to cornucopian lights and, and, and then find out, okay, well, which which of these various different 
um, systems on the internet is the best to conduct my life in, uh, and my life and my work in. So it's a very different world. It's it's not the world where we lived in a country subject to a king, and we went about our life in a very predetermined way, and there was a lot of stability. No, this is going to be a very fast-paced, very chaotic um, world of ever shaping, ever ever shifting, ever shaping networks where individual people are just achieving massive feats of uh, massive economic feats of production um, because of the the abilities that they're granted by artificial intelligence. And then they're going to spread that all over the world and they're going to be always disrupting each other and competing in a hyper-competitive world, Uh, but they're going to be able to write the rules of engagement amongst themselves to a much greater extent. It's a very different world that we're looking at. Um, There are good aspects, there are bad aspects, um, and... So inequality would be one of those bad aspects, arguably, so there'd be greater inequality because you're talking about a world, a more hyper-competitive world, a world where we will end up with more billionaires, more tech billionaires, and... Made every minute. Made every yeah, minute, and, yeah. And that's, that, um, it's, it's difficult to, to, add, um, to add a moral judgment to that. Like it, it, it could be a good thing or, or a bad thing um, depending on how you look at it. Um, I suppose one one caveat we would like to add is that you know when we are seeing this this new emergent economy in in many senses of the word being built on these technologies, we need to remember risk management and also the fact that these technologies are prone to failure as well. And so a very practical sort of um, suggestion for individuals and for businesses and you know even governments is to have contingency plans and to ensure that we have enough residual capacity in lower order technologies just to keep things chugging along if something were to fail. So, you know, if, say every 50 to 100 years, we have a large scale solar flare, which disrupts enormous amounts of electricity grids and destroys all sorts of digital information. Um, you know, we've only been using these technologies to the extent that we are in the last 20 years. And so, if we were to see a once in a hundred year or once in a 500 year event, are we prepared for the impact that might have on a, on a, um, on a society? And we should be grateful for the benefits which all these general purpose technologies allow, but also mindful of the fact that we don't become over-reliant on them. Yeah. Good point. I think that's one of the final points in your book, isn't it? It's in, uh, I think I saw that in the, the chapter structure for your book that, uh, yes, you talk about contingencies. Look, this has been amazing. This has been great. I'm going to have to, yes, I'll definitely read this book as soon as I can. What have we missed? Are there any final any final points before I leave, before we leave? My final point, I think, would be what we encourage people to do with this world that's coming. Uh, this, this is a world that's going to – that is um, – Ironically, one that is con- that is going to be won by people who return to a very old form of education, um, which is a very general education. So you know a little about a lot, and the reason for that, um, this book came out after, uh, again after we got the proofs in for this, a fantastic book by David Epstein called Range, um, which talks about. Uh, why this is important to have this general classical knowledge, you know, a bit of science, a bit of mathematics, but importantly, literature, history, philosophy, art. 
you need a very broad range of skills to be able to succeed in this future economy because you need to be able to talk to people. You need to be able to catch people's attention, but then you need to be able to produce for them. Um, you need to have an ability to, have, to, to be creative, to be able to exercise judgment, um, to be able to pick up on these incredibly human and complicated, subtle hints that people have when they're talking to each other so that you can, so that you can work with them a lot better. Um, and you need to have all of these things at once so, uh, so that you can navigate this new hyper-competitive, um, at once highly technical, but on the other hand, extremely human world. Um, you need to be able to, to, to develop new sets of knowledge quickly. You need to be able to go deep into, into particular sets of knowledge. And the way you do that is to have a basis in just about everything. Um, you, can, you, can, you can develop... Uh, you can develop a specific knowledge set from a general knowledge set, but it's really hard to develop a whole new specific knowledge set if, you, if you're very siloed. Mm. Now, this, this new world that we're looking at is not going to be kind, is my belief, and, and uh, is what our system, our models are saying. This is not a world that's going to be uh, uh, um, favourable. It's not going to be kind to people who are siloed. It's going to be kind to people who can move and integrate different sorts of skills. Scott Adams talks about this as the talent stack. It's going to be um, conducive to people who can use, have a general knowledge that gives them a unique flavour, unique set of abilities and a way to interact with people so that they can bring that unique uh, set of skills and capabilities to create value for others. So my plea to people is to actually, despite the fact that we're talking about a lot of high tech here, is to return to the basics, read the classics, um, you know, understand science and mathematics, absolutely. Understand science and mathematics, understand technology, but one of the big problems that we're having with blockchain right now, one of the massive problems that any startup in this world has now is the need to understand what causes people to tick, understand what causes their eye to be drawn to you and held by you. Um, and so for that, you, you need to be able to, and to produce goods and services that people feel good about, that are beautiful and that are easy to use. Um, Steve Jobs is the archetype of this. He was not a great coder, but he was a fantastic um, man in, in the way that he could combine his knowledge of coding with his knowledge of the human in order to produce beautiful products that people found really easy to use. That is the sort of person that succeeds in the future world. So understand science and mathematics and technology, but also don't lose sight of literature, of art, of philosophy. And my final words would echo Brendan's in the fact that um, if you as an individual or as, you know, as a business owner want to succeed in the new economy, well, at the individual level, you need to have adapt, uh, adaptable skills, transferable skills. You need to master the art of learning quickly. You need to be able to um, get along with people well. And we're going to see the most successful people in businesses are going to be those who can overperform in their ability to deliver real authentic human contact and um, fulfill the most basic um, desires of human nature to, to, to um, fulfill a sense of belonging and community and, and, and being, being sort of cared for and, and respected. Um, and 
when you look at the value that the fourth industrial revolution is going to bring, every previous industrial revolution has served to free up people's time to devote to higher order activities. And so, you know, the first industrial revolution helped a lot of people to move from farming, subsistence farming, and get um, get jobs where they had more leisure time. And with that leisure time, they could devote to the higher order activities and aspirational activities to, you know, to get education and to work towards things that they found meaningful. And we're going to see that in the new economy more and more, people are going to have more time. Businesses are going to have new opportunities to provide value. Yeah. And the, the winners are going to be those people and businesses who can do that to the greatest extent, provide authentic human value. The, the irony of this is that the more tech we amass, the more technical capability we amass, the less we have to act like machines, the more we can act like humans. That's brilliant. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Nicholas. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well done again on the book. People, please buy the book from the Routledge site. Is that right, Taylor and Francis? Dot com. And it's available on, on Rutledge, Amazon, Book Depository, all major um, outlets. Okay, I'll put some links in the show notes. Gentlemen, so good to have you on the program. It's been I a hope, pleasure. Excellent. I hope the book sells really well. Bye. Me too. Thanks very much, Gene. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Economics Explored podcast. If you're enjoying it, please tell your family and friends and please give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or on whatever platform you're listening on. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or to ask any questions, please email me at gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.